you have to love all the minutiae that goes into hospitality. It's really a sum of a lot of small parts and take pride in your work and be confident and just give your best. If you love your team and you work with your team as hard as possible and they see you working with them, you'll go, they'll carry you forever. And just remember you're in it with a bunch of other people and it's one big team to make it happen. You can't do it all on your own. Welcome to the Hospitality Mentor Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Turk. Join me as we dive into the personal stories of some of the world's best hospitality professionals. We follow the journey of their ups, downs, and wild turns to find out what it truly takes to make it in the amazing world of hospitality. This episode is brought to you by our podcast partners at Real-Time Reservation. Their inventory management system is best in class for hotels and resorts to manage their non-room inventory. The web-based application allows for creative upselling of overnight and daytime visitors with add-ons and pre-planned packages. Hotel guests and non-guests can reserve cabanas, pool chairs, activities, amenities, excursions, events, day passes, and much more. The real-time reservation platform offers a fully integrated pre-arrival portal where guests are verified through the property management system. Guests can prepay for cabanas and activities through credit card integrations, which are then processed through point of sale. All of our listeners that might be interested in using real-time reservation are welcome to explore the demo at realtimereservation.com. Once again, that's realtimereservation.com. Welcome to another edition of the Hospitality Mentor Podcast. Today, I'm thrilled to have Matt Dinkle, the general manager of Mandolin Aegean Bistro, one of the hottest restaurants in all of Miami. Matt, thanks for being on the podcast today. Happy to be here. Well, Matt, I want to jump right into it. What was your first job in hospitality? How did you get started? So it's kind of a a long winding story. I think a lot of your guests you've had on, it starts before the first job when you get in the hospitality. Uh, for me, hands down, growing up, I'm from a very small town in Indiana called Danville, Indiana. Uh, growing up there was about 6,000 people. Now it's uh, booming almost 10,000 people. So maybe wow. one, maybe one apartment building in downtown Miami's worth of uh, people, mostly agriculture based, um, very small town. We are the home of the Mayberry and the Midwest festival based off the Andy Griffith show. So that's kind of where I'm from, but growing up, spent a lot of time with both of my grandmothers. Uh, one, uh, my grandmother Lillian Wills was much more on the Southern side, big family dinners, uh, loved fried chicken. She was also the chef and general manager. One, that was one position at my uncle's restaurant. Uh, that he had opened in my hometown for 47 years, Dave's All-American oh, Pizza. Wow. So as a kid, I would frequently find reasons to be sick at school, especially seven, eight, nine years old, or find a way to hang out with grandma at the pizza place before they were open and be in the kitchen and just kind of hanging out and enjoying being in the restaurant. Uh, it definitely set the tone moving forward, how much I enjoy being in restaurants. And from a very young age, felt like this is what I want to be doing. My other grandma, uh, Ruth Ann Dinkle, was the most hospitable person I have ever been around. 
you know, we, most of the family and everybody that knows her still talks about, you know, her chicken and dumplings and how amazing that was. And she was constantly in the kitchen, always a people pleaser. And that's who I spent most of my time with between being in a restaurant and somebody now almost acting as a hotelier, welcoming people into her home all the time, constantly cooking. It was just a feast everywhere we went. So from a very young age, I kind of had the hospitality bug, wanted it to stick forever. I wasn't really sure if there was anything else I could do. My first true job in hospitality, I was not allowed to work at my uncle's pizza place because I was on the football team and he had uh, some disagreements with the football coach on the availability of his players to cover shifts. Uh, so when it was when I was of working age, I was not allowed to work at Dave's Law American Pizza. So naturally, I got a job at a different pizza place called Pizza King Avon Station. It's an Indiana-based food chain. The concept might not make a whole lot of sense. The train, the drinks were all delivered by a toy train to the booths, um, but it was just summertime work in the restaurant, in the kitchen, making pizzas, making salads. It's where I first found I had no problem being in a restaurant for 14, 15, 16 hours a day. When you left, you kind of felt like you were missing something or you wanted to be part of it. And I worked there all through high school and eventually went to Purdue University and studied hospitality at Purdue University. Uh, beautiful campus. I'm very biased. I'm from the Midwest. I love Purdue. Uh, we're kind of the lovable losers of the Big Ten, uh, but it's a great community there. And that's where I was first exposed to all different cultures and cuisines of food. And coming from a small town, we're eating a lot of fried catfish. You know, we used to go, um, before I even knew foraging was a word, we would go mushroom hunting and find morel mushrooms just all over the woods. Now, that could be a lucrative practice if I was back home. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, that's um, pretty awesome. So going from there, getting into college and being exposed to Thai food, to Indian food, I think the first time I had sushi, I was 21 years old. It was just kind of like 18, 19, 20 years old, experiencing this whole world of cuisine built around a college campus while also studying hospitality. It kind of stoked the fires to get out there and see the world and get involved uh, as much as I could in hospitality. I had never worked in a hotel before, but going to hospitality school, you're focused mostly on how to operate hotels. Purdue is much more of a research-based university than some others. Uh, so there's a lot more on the accounting side and process management side. I think the first time I heard the term Six Sigma was in college. Have, you know, I was lucky enough to go through that course a little bit later when I started my actual hotel career. After I graduated college, I was lucky enough to get a job in Hawaii. And I started my first job right out of college at a Sheridan in Kona. At the time, it was called the Sheridan Keoho Bay Resort and Spa. I believe they just recently changed to the Outrigger Kona. But what a, I, I showed up for my interview there in a full suit. Uh, I had seven days after graduating from Purdue. The HR manager, Connie Adorinto, was very warm and welcoming and they were, everybody was kind of chuckling at me like who's this guy here in a suit in hawaii, <laughs> in hawaii suit, yeah. and, suit and tie everybody else was in just aloha shirts and slacks and uh, i just really fell in love with what it takes to run a resort it was about 521 rooms 514 i believe built on top of an old lava flow so it wasn't your traditional hawaiian resort it was on kind of a cliffside um i believe it still has 
Hawaii's largest water slide at the hotel pool. So just getting out of college and experiencing all of that was yes. amazing. And well, it, let me, yeah, let me come back and unpack a couple of things because you gave me a, yeah. a nice journey, which I love hearing yeah. the full journey from high school to Purdue and then to Hawaii. So I want to touch on a couple of things there. So when you went to Purdue, right, you've been in working in restaurants, your family has restaurants. Did you choose like say, you know, what, I really want to be in hospitality and, and family. I'm going to Purdue University for hospitality because I want to be a. Did you have that goal? Well, or it's like, well, I'm not sure what I want to do, but I like hospitality. It was a little bit of both. I think in the back of my mind, and if you had ever spoken to any of my friends from high school, they would say one day he's going to have a sports bar. I originally went to be an education major and I, for a year and a half, I wanted to go be a teacher. And I also have teachers in the family and I really thought that's what I wanted to do. But as things happen in college, freshman, sophomore year, school wasn't the most important thing on my list of to do's at Purdue. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, I really struggled with education. Uh, it was very structured and I kind of had to get serious with myself and say, when you're not here, you're working in a restaurant. You want to have a restaurant. You need to figure out what you want to do with yourself. And Purdue had a really highly regarded hospitality program at the time. And I was able to make the transfer. I did the four year program in two and a half years. Uh, at the same time I was working with the school, the university's chef doing banquet events in the mornings at the president's house and opening a barbecue restaurant as like a line level employee. And I just fully immersed myself back into restaurants and hospitality. And I have been lucky enough to not stop since then. That's awesome. So you got all the experience you were learning in school. You were working in the two different jobs, doing banquets and restaurant school comes up. And then like, well, I went to Florida state university and the Deadman school of hospitality was similar. In regards where I think they made you like go get a job after they set up interviews for you. Is that how you found that first job in Hawaii? So the first job in Hawaii was a little bit of uh, luck. I had applied an interview with a lot of the hospitality companies that are coming through Purdue. We had a lot of career days. The Four Seasons Swallow Lie at the time, the resort manager was also from Purdue and he would pretty regularly come to Purdue and interview. Uh, he interviewed me. I didn't make the cut for Four Seasons. Uh, my girlfriend at the time did make the cut. I never did. I interviewed twice. They never let me in. <laughs> right. And I, I still, to this day, I haven't made the cut. I haven't tried again since then. I think uh, I'm really happy where I'm at. Yes. Uh, yeah. You know, I was lucky enough that my girlfriend at the time, she got the job or a job at Four Seasons in food and beverage at Hawaii. And she was like, I'm going to go to Hawaii. Do you want to come with me? And 21 years old stay home and maybe work at a racetrack outside Chicago or kind of go around Indianapolis hotels or go to Hawaii and kind of see what I can do. I decided to go with her. I started emailing furiously emailing every hotel HR team I could, Hey, I'm actually moving there from the Midwest. I will be there in seven days. Can I interview here? And I interviewed at almost every hotel on the big Island, um, from Waikoloa to Kona and, um, even some independent restaurants because I was my banquet work was mostly in the kitchen. I was interviewing. I had a job lined up to be a line cook. And I was like, I'll just start here and figure it out. The management trainee that was originally going to be at the Sheridan had backed out at the last second. And the day of my interview, they pulled me in and said, we know you've applied for these other positions, but this is now available. Would you like to do that? And I think I said yes before they even finished the sentence. And it that really 
started my true hotel like resort career, you know, two weeks in human resources, two weeks in revenue management, two weeks to the front desk. I got to food and beverage. They had just hired a food and beverage manager. His name was Shaq Von Rumer. Probably my first hospitality, my true hospitality mentor, the most intense, hardest working director of food and beverage I have ever worked with. And the team would run through a brick wall for Shaq. I would still run through a brick wall for Shaq if he asked me to. It was really just the two of us. We were short managers and he saw this young Midwestern kid that was willing to work in food and beverage and didn't really have anything else going on outside the hotel. And he's put me to work 70, 80, 90 hours a week, working luau's, working every restaurant. And it put my whole career into fast forward. Yeah, I, I got, saw, right? As my notes, you were a management trainee for like four months. So you must have worked really hard because then they moved you up to a supervisor very quickly, right? right? And then yeah. you did that and then you jumped into banquets, right? So you like fast forwarded very fast into becoming a manager, it seemed like. Yeah. The, uh, in the AM, I was the AM supervisor, which was our, I ran our breakfast buffet, which at the Sheridan was huge. We were doing like 600, 700 covers a day for our buffet breakfast, mostly Japanese visitors. It was fast and furious. Your shift started at four 30 and you were done around two in the afternoon. I was also opening the coffee shop, the pool bar, kind of setting up all the other outlets at the time. And the only thing I wasn't really doing was banquets. And when you're not in banquets and you're in a hotel and you see the banquet team, they're like always the cool kids. They're doing all the cool events. Yeah. They're there late. You know, it's mostly lots of hospitality veterans that have kind of been through it. They all have horror stories that you want to hear about. And I threw myself to them like, hey, it's slow this week in the restaurant. Do you need help? And I was kind of helping set up events here and there. We had three luau's a week. So it was constantly setting up like a 200 person dinner on one of the lawns and the banquet manager, uh, Kristen Garrett was her name. She resigned, was kind of done, didn't want to work in banquets anymore, was getting out of hotels and the opportunity fell in my lap. Would you like to do this? And I, again, another situation where, you know, I, I'm, I can never believe when somebody gives me an opportunity. Yeah, I always think I don't deserve it. So when somebody's giving me an opportunity, I'm just very quick to be like, yes, absolutely. Let's make the most of it. And there's no bad things that can really come of that. You can maybe find a job yourself in a job that you're not happy with, but then you're also learning something. Okay, maybe I shouldn't do this or learning things that you're really good at. You find a way to be good at something and just produce good results. And I was lucky enough that I loved doing banquets at the time. I did it for about a year there at the hotel. And then our general manager at the hotel, Scott Brooks, and the director of food and beverage, Shaq Von Rumer, were both getting promoted to come open the W in Fort Lauderdale as the general manager and the director of operations. And wow, so both from Hawaii. All right. I remember that hotel yeah. opening. So I'm excited to hear how this goes. Yeah. You know, so now I'm 24. I feel like I, I'm starting to get pretty confident. There's only a couple more positions. Before, I'm telling myself, you're going to be a director of food and beverage before you're 25. All these crazy goals that are not realistic in hindsight. And I'm glad they didn't happen that way because I would have been horrible at it. The opportunity came about a few months after Shaq and Scott had left. They reached out and said, we need a director of banquets for the W. And, you know, they said, we would love to work for you, work with you. If you want to come and give it a shot, I interviewed. I was lucky enough to get the position 
And this in September of 2008, I was signed on to be the director of banquets. And I moved out there, I moved to Fort Lauderdale. I arrived December 15th, 2008. And I right. hadn't driven on a highway in like two years. So first yeah. things first, getting on 95 <laughs> in a rental car at the Fort Lauderdale airport and trying to find at the time the Sheridan Yankee Clipper where they were putting up all the pre-opening managers. Uh, I think I was more scared driving on 95 than I was for this new opportunity of opening a hotel. It was terrifying to get yeah. on the highway all of a sudden after two years driving around an island with only one lane. Yeah, for all the listeners who are not from South Florida, I-95 South Florida is, I think, rated one of the most dangerous highways in the <clears throat> entire country because everyone drives with no rules. So, Matt, yeah. welcome to my welcome to South Florida was probably yeah. felt when you got here. And it was very... It was incredibly eye-opening because I'm still only two years removed from only being a kid from Indiana. Right. So that's what I was going to ask you. You were just in school, right? 2007, you graduate. And then 2008, to be a director of banquets, you know, you must have shown that had seen something in you because that's a big responsibility, especially at a new opening, which was considered like the hottest hotel opening in that area. It was the first W. Uh, that was, that opening experience was amazing. It was, I always tell people, it was like going to graduate school for hospitality because you really get shown. It was my first time opening a hotel. Obviously I had opened the the barbecue restaurant, obviously is a much smaller scale than W (laughs) Fort Lauderdale. Yeah. Um, you know, so I was, I spent a lot of time working with the project manager, the director of housekeeping. We set up almost every single hotel room there we worked with, uh, this small crew of, uh, contract laborers receiving every box and sending things to where they belong within the building. It was a three, it was two towers that sat on two pedestals with one giant underground parking garage. I had never been in a building as big as that hotel in my entire life. So I was just completely awestruck by what it takes to get something like that off the ground and moving. Yeah, you know, as the director of banquets, I was there. I had all my, at the time it was Starwood still. Mm-hmm. which is was such an amazing company to work for. And I know you had Brian Proctor on previously. Yep. I remember Brian from my Starwood days, uh, specifically opening the W. I believe he was part of the, the team that was there helping us get open. Um, it was it was intense because there was a couple of things we had going for us that had not been done at that time in Starwood, where we were the first W to open south of Atlanta, which doesn't seem like a whole lot. But when you think back on what W is and what South Florida is, it should have been maybe one of the first places that W was open. So there was a lot of pressure to do it right. You know, W Austin was coming down the pipeline and the, the eyes were on us and W South Beach, who opened like a month and a day after we did, to really nail it. We also were working with star restaurants inside the hotel. So not your traditional food and beverage operations inside the hotel where star restaurants ran all of the back of house operations, banquets, Room in-room dining, everything came from star restaurants. Banquet service was hotel food and beverage. Room service, IRD at the time, was hotel food and beverage. The Munchie Box, which is like an honor bar kind of mini bar situation. We had a W Cafe. And then we had a third company, uh, Gerber Group, Midnight Oil Company, was running Whiskey Blue Lounge on the ground floor, the lobby bar, and all the pool parties and pool service. So what was that like when you had so many different players in there? Because I haven't, I've worked, when, like Nobu Restaurant was like that when I was at Nobu Hotels, where they kind of ran their own show, but you all had to get together to make sure everything worked. 
How was yeah. that? Because everyone has their own interests, right? But you all have to work together. How was that yeah. experience? For me at the time, it was incredibly intimidating. When we opened, I was the only Starwood food and beverage manager in the entire building. So I was, my title was director of banquets, but it was in-room dining, the Munchie Box, W Cafe, the pool lounge service, and also banquet events. And we had a huge floor of banquets. Um, and I really felt like I was king of the world. Uh, for better or for worse, I felt like this is it. You made it. Look at this amazing place. And then seeing how Star Restaurants operates and seeing how the Gerber Group were operating and then kind of realizing there's this whole other world to hospitality that I wasn't aware of at the time. Mm-hmm. And it, w- it was intimidating because, you know, with Star Restaurants, they were bringing guys from Philadelphia. They were bringing, you know, Stephen was in the restaurant a lot, in the space a lot. And I was kind of still like a doe-eyed college kid that was trying to figure out exactly what he was doing. And if he was doing it right, I was just kind of at that time, it was like, just work as hard as you possibly can and do everything they ask because they're going to find out you're not good. And you had to prove them otherwise. And learning from the star team uh, was amazing. Eventually they come back in my career story down the road. Uh, and seeing how the Gerber group managing bars and nightclubs, it was so incredibly different. The W Fort Lauderdale as a resort versus how the Sheridan as a resort was operated and the types of things that were important. There's not really nightclubs in Hawaii on the big Island. And then the first night we're open to the W and there's a line for whiskey blue that goes down past the West end. You know, we ruffled some feathers opening that hotel. It was very busy. It was loud. It was the party scene. It was, something that Fort Lauderdale had not ever seen. And yeah, you had a lot of celebrities there. I remember it clear. Yeah, the, uh, I remember like Jamie Foxx singing happy birthday to people inside Steak 954 and the Kardashians before they became the Kardashians. This was kind of the beginning. They had just stopped living at the Eden Rock, I think. Mm-hmm. They came you know, to the opening of the lobby bar. And it was just, I had never, it, it was another one. It was like a pinch me moment. I cannot believe I'm part of something like this. And I was lucky enough to do that for about three and a half years as the director of banquets. The hotel was going through some changes and that Scott Brooks, who is still the general manager, came to me and said, you know, your star voice scores, which were like our employee satisfaction surveys are very good. The results we get from the banquet team are very good. I see how hard you're working. I see how much this means to you. We need your help in rooms. Yeah, so this is where you make a transition to <laughs> director of rooms. So this is what I was actually excited to talk to you about because I know very few people who've done this well. One is one of my mentors who's now the, the complex general manager of Lowe's My Beach Hotels and Coral Gables Hotel. He's the only one I know who did it well. So tell me, how did this go for you? Because for a lot of people, that's a, a challenge. It, it, you know, it wasn't easy. That's for sure. And I made a lot of mistakes and I learned a lot and I was – I was very easily discouraged when I made a lot of, when I was making mistakes, but the amount of information that you learn and how to deal with guests, uh, you know, in food and beverage, we can solve every single problem a guest brings to us. I don't like this drink. Perfect. Let me make you a new one. My steak is overcooked. Absolutely. We'll bring you a new steak prepared exactly the way you want it. You can't change the first impression of a guest at check-in. They're waiting too long to get checked in. Their kids are rambunctious and they want to get to their room and you send the keys and there's somebody else in their room and you've ruined their vacation. They haven't even started yet. 
and how learning how to deal with guests like that. And you have to, this might not be the, the right turn of phrase, but sometimes in rooms you have to really swallow your pride and just listen to the guests and say, absolutely. That's where you learn the true hospitality, anything you need, I'm here for you. Uh, it also helped build great connections getting introduced to at the W at the time we had the W insider program, which was like a hybrid front desk associate concierge brand ambassador that was responsible for curating specific experiences for guests, not just at the hotel, but all around town. And when they come to W Fort Lauderdale, they reach out to, this is the guy you have to talk to. I was very lucky to have an excellent W Insider, a, a few really good W Insiders. Uh, his name was Ryan Thomas. He now works for the city of Fort Lauderdale. Wow. Uh, but he kind of started and was, came under my wing as a front desk supervisor and an overnight uh, PBX or whatever, whenever was the W term. Uh, but PBX, more or less, uh, was starting there overnight, worked his way up, became a W Insider. We worked really, there was a lot of tough love between the two of us. And we eventually worked together again down the road at the Dalmar. Um, but it, it made it fun because there were definitely things I struggled with. It was, we had just introduced, uh, Starwood just introduced the TLPE system, which was an intuitive revenue driving system where you would load in your rates and it would tell you which kind of avenues you could turn on, turn off, like Expedia and all these different booking rates and Besides my two weeks in revenue management as a management trainee, things I had never thought about for five years and never thought I'd think about again. Um, and it's, it was very challenging because um, then I'm there Saturday night at 9 p.m. with the general manager on the phone trying to determine the booking strategy for this beautiful Oceanside Resort. And I really just want to be serving dinner <laughs> and opening mm, wine bottles yeah. and and it was, it was challenging. You know, I, I, I definitely did as much as I, you know, as I worked just as hard as I could in food and beverage. And I think part of my frustrations and difficulties were the way you can work in food and beverage and get results is very different than what you have to do in rooms to make it successful. Yes. Um, the hotel at the time went through even more change. The entire executive committee kind of turned over in my one year there and we had some of our senior leaders, unfortunately, you know, had passed away in the same time that I was there. And it was a very difficult transition period for the hotel. I had the new director of operations, his name was Michelle Naughton. I believe he's now the general manager at the Edition in Madrid. And if he hears this, he'll definitely tell me I got it wrong or said his name wrong. <laughs> but he was young. He was a hospitality, and I'm sure still is, hospitality to the core. Like if you looked up hospitality in the dictionary, it would be Michelle's picture. And our relation, working relationship was a little challenging because he expected rooms as the most important revenue generator in the hotel. And it was clear it wasn't the right position for me. Right. And he took me under his wing. He helped me as much as he possibly could. And he was very honest. He's like, you're really good at things that are not beneficial to you in your current position let's try and find you something in the area, find something for you that you can be beneficial and helpful to Starwood and, you know, kind of for the company, stay with the company. You've been with us now for seven years at this point, And there's no doubt we want you to be part of it, which I, I, I'm forever grateful for, because that's not an easy conversation to have. 
there's a lot of leaders that would have just said, why is this yeah. food and beverage guy? Yeah, I need him out. In? Yeah, I yeah. need this guy out of here. And that's not the, that's not how they approached it. Uh, and I'll forever be grateful for that because it, I, I had seen it happen to other people in the same hotel and at most hotels. And they took the time and had patience for me. And that's what led me to getting back in the food and beverage at the Eden Rock. Yeah, so was that, that wasn't part of Starwood at the time, was it? No, it, this is, uh, it so was how did that happen? Time. I'm curious. Cause for a lot of people, you, you know, make this jump and it's the first time they jump. You were with Starwood out of college. You grow right. with Starwood, you travel across the globe with them, right? Yeah. You sacrifice a lot of time. You jump into rooms, which is hard for anyone to do. Like, you know, could I do it? Probably. Would I like it? No. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> yeah, that, I think that uh, was one of the most challenging things was I walked into rooms every day, just knowing I would work as hard as possible and try my best and something's going to happen. And I'm like, man, I can't believe I'm very difficult on myself when I make mistakes and I made a lot of mistakes. It was difficult. It was very difficult to kind of wake up every day and really love doing it. So you realize what you like doing. So how does the Eden Rock come around? So it's a place that we both work. So I'm curious to hear about your experience on yeah. your destination hotel and resorts. Yes. Uh, so I was there right after the transition in the kind of the hospitality hostile takeover when Marriott was asked to leave the building and destination moves in. And, yeah, and this was, happened overnight. I remember it was in the newspaper, right? Marriott yeah, is yeah. there. They lock the doors, they kick everybody out and then a new management company comes in. Yes. The next morning. Yeah. I'm glad that you read it that way because my yeah. first day was mostly hourly staff saying, I cannot believe this just happened last week. And everybody was trying to pick up the piece, literally pick up the pieces and figure out what had just happened. You know, the journal manager there, his name at the time was Jim Maurer. And he was friends with our director of finance at the W or they were a connection. They had worked together previously and they were able to get me in touch with each other. And that's kind of how I made my way into interviewing there. And the restaurant that used to be there at the time was 1500 degrees, which was very highly regarded and had a great following and very busy. Yeah, like Master chef was in there, right? Like from the show Master yeah. Chef or something, right? Yeah. Uh, Paula Da Silva was the chef there and like mm -hmm. in Esquire magazine and all these amazing accolades. And then when Marriott left, that restaurant belonged to Marriott. Mm. So now destinations in a hotel and they're trying to pick up the pieces and open a new restaurant. And they decided to call the restaurant 15 steps, mostly so they could keep the 15 that was already emblazoned on the most of the menus. The chef, the cuisine was Jeremy Ford, who has since gone on to do oh, nice. a lot of amazing things. Yeah. And this was really his first time as like a chef de cuisine. And, you know, the dining room was beautiful. It was a farm to table restaurant. The whole idea was it's 15 steps from seed to plate. And it was my first time truly running a real restaurant. And we were, you know, we really felt like we were onto something great. The food was excellent. The service was really good. It was in this iconic dining room in an iconic building. And about six months in, some of the team from Nobu that was at the Shore Club at the time, yep. were just kind of walking around the dining room, taking pictures of stuff and introduced themselves. Hey, we just worked down the street. We're just looking. <laughs> and, and then a couple of weeks later, we were doing breakfast, lunch, and dinner buffets out of the ballroom. And they were demoing the restaurant, getting ready for Nobu to move in. And for the first time in my career, I was completely just down, just completely downtrodden. 
um, I was really just beside myself. I, I felt like we were doing a great job. We had only had p positive feedback. We had a super talented chef and none of it really mattered. You know, there were bigger things at play and that was a difficult lesson to learn at that time that, you know, what we're doing on a daily basis sometimes is small potatoes compared to what the bigger picture is. And they made the right call. They made the right decision without a doubt because their recognized brand of Nobu and I was there long enough to get to work with some of their team as they were doing redoing some of the hotel rooms and showing us the plans for the restaurant. Uh, it was it was just incredibly exciting to see it happen. Um, but it was difficult to be excited when you knew what it cost uh, on a personal level. I had just had my second child when that happened. Um, wow. So I was like, this is it. I don't think I can do operations anymore. It's time to step away. I was very lucky to find a job with a hospitality consulting firm called RevPar International. And I was there for a very brief time, mostly because it's very difficult to get out of operations. It's very, it's kind of, uh, when you fight fires your whole life and there's no more fires, you start looking for a fire. Um, it was an amazing experience. It was a whole nother view of the hospitality industry, mostly a lot of research, real estate research, tax records, helping implement, you know, programs to solve issues. It was, it was more from an ownership side of hospitality, which I had never been exposed to and coming off of an ownership decision that I felt personally affected me and changed my career then to be on the side of ownership and looking at things that way, it, it helps put things in perspective. Uh, Chris, yeah, did you was, understand? Did you understand then what Eden rock was doing? Like, all right, this makes a little bit more sense of why they're changing all of this. I mean, I think like, as, soon, as soon as I saw the plans for the new Nobu restaurant, I had a, I was like, this makes a lot more sense because it's big, it's beautiful. It's sushi, it's Nobu. And it's something that everybody wanted on the beach and still wants on the mm -hmm. beach and it was a bigger space than what they had at shore club and they had all the whole tower that was going to be the nobu tower as well um you know it, it made sense i i definitely got over the sting when i started to see more of the ownership side from when working with RevPar. and you know i learned a lot at RevPar from the way i break down finan understanding financials and the different levels of financial reporting that were not readily available to a day-to-day -day operations manager. Usually it's just like the PL. And you go through that and you have to understand that and your labor reports and and understanding then from the other side, truly going through balance sheets and pro form making pro formas for different hotel brands and speaking to different hotel brands about what they would bring to an owner in different areas. It um it, I feel personally it elevated my understanding of hospitality to a level that I never thought was possible for myself. But at the same time, I missed the hey, daily missed grind. The action. Missed I missed the action. The action. <laughs> I was, I, I think I remember telling when I handed in my notice to Chris Silkey, who was an excellent leader and so incredibly patient with me. I told him, I, I feel like I'm an animal in a cage and I'm like pacing around the office and, trying to find things to do and helping people in my free time that just to kind of stay occupied. And uh, while I made the decision to get into the consulting and to get out of operations, you know, because I wanted to spend more time with the kids as they're growing up. And I thought I could easily transition into being, I can be in hospitality without being in hospitality. It, it, it wasn't for me. 
and it was just difficult to you just miss the you just miss doing it you know you just miss kind of being in the grind and working really hard and really leaving the day feeling like you've really accomplished something because of all the people you've served or all the happy people that have left and um i missed it i missed the the grind for sure well then look, I, I completely understand because i've seen so many people who leave and come back but then you do something you know a little bit different where you're not part of a hotel and you join you know for my parents who are listening bob and marinez turk they love this restaurant so tell me about how you got involved with mignonette so when I was working at the Eden Rock, Danny Surfer had originally called me to see if I'd be interested in the lead server slash manager position. At Blue and Collar or there? At Minionette. This is before Got it had opened. And at that time, I said no. And I wasn't prepared to go from being a GM of this restaurant to being a server and a manager. And after six months of the consulting firm, he, he kind of came calling again, was like, we're busier than anticipated we want a real, we want a manager, somebody that can lead this for us. And, you know, like I, I missed, I missed being in operations and I had never even eaten an oyster in my entire life before the <laughs> day before my first day at Mignonette. Oh man. And I went there for dinner the day before I started and had a dozen oysters and the whole family we went and, you know, it was just such a small, I shouldn't say small. It was very quaint and cute and there's just something so romantic about being in an, in an independent restaurant mm -hmm. doing things their own way making their own identity and having such an at the time a huge impact in the dining scene in miami it was really a special restaurant it still is and i it was almost like really growing up all over again to go there and the biggest change for me was for the first time i was one of the oldest employees in the restaurant and my whole career up to that point i had been kind of the younger guy learning from everybody else and just kind of working as hard as i can now i'm the oldest employee i'm in charge of this whole team at mignonette they i started there just six months after they had opened yeah so what is that like place and i, I want to hit down that because you've worked at heavy volume places right you're at the w fort lauderdale giant banquets you're at the eden rock which is you know third largest hotel on the beach probably doing 600 covers for breakfast, lunch, and dinner across the property every day. Mignonette is not that, right? It is, like you said, a boutique, small right. restaurant. What was that like? Because I've, I've never worked in a standalone restaurant. I've worked in brand names within hotels. But what is that like right. when you make that jump? So it was very, it was incredibly freeing. I felt like I had a lot of control over almost every single process within the restaurant. And when you enter Mignonette, there, I haven't been for a while, but I'm assuming the hostess stand is still there as soon as you walk in the front yep. door. And from mm -hmm. that spot, you can see every single thing happening in the restaurant. And to be the person that's in charge of that dining room and everybody sit, sitting down can see you and they're enjoying all their food and they're enjoying their service and their wine. It was, it's difficult to explain it. It was just incredibly like charging, just like inner, like the energy that came from being that that person was amazing and it motivated is so motivating to be like, okay, I owe it to all these people here. You know, there's no part there's, well, there is parking behind Mignonette, but it's not the best mm -hmm. part of town and yeah. it's not easy. It's not the easiest place to get to. And there's, you know, like 4,000 restaurants according to TripAdvisor in Miami. And we would have 200 people every Friday night, make the choice to come to Mignonette. And 
that was incredibly motivating to just make it the best possible place it could be for all these guests because it's a real choice to choose to spend your time and money. And at the time, it, Miami was still go to the beach, pay $40 for valet, eat at a hotel. Yep. There wasn't a lot of independent restaurants that were really doing well at that time. You know, Michael's has been doing great since the day it opened its door. And places like that have been around. Mandolin is one of them. Um, yeah, but that but was something, because I live in this neighborhood. So I live, so for listeners, Edgewater is basically right north of downtown. Mignonette is in Edgewater, but it's also an interesting spot. And I wanted to ask you this. It was actually on my questions to ask. So it's also directly across the street from the first cemetery in all of Miami where the founder of Miami is located and like very famous uh, original families, uh, a lot of history there. I uh, just got a history fan of Miami. So what was yeah. that like when you say, Hey, I'm going to choose a work in a restaurant that's across the street from the graveyard. Is, is it kind of like, well, it's better here than across the street. Is that kind of, well, it's, it was, it added a lot of charm to the restaurant mm -hmm. um, because it, it gave us even more of that kind of underdog feeling. And if you've been to Blue Collar, like Blue Collar is, in my opinion, one of the restaurants that changed dining in Miami because where it's at in Biscayne and when it opened and now what Biscayne is, it's its own neighborhood, Mimo yep. now. You know, it, it wasn't that when Blue Collar opened. And Mignonette was doing the same for Edgewater. And it's a roughly New Orleans style raw bar. So to be across from a cemetery, it kind of adds a little bit more of that New yeah, Orleans cool. style to it. Um, and it was, it was charming. I mean, it, we didn't really, surprisingly, not a lot of questions were ever asked about the cemetery. We would have, you know, every Halloween, there was always big tours that would end right at, right at 30 minutes before we closed the restaurant. And they all end up in Mignonette for oysters and wine and beers. And yeah, I was part um, of one of those. I was part of, yeah. <laughs> I was part of one of those with Dr. Paul George of the history museum of Miami. Yeah. I think it, it, it added a lot of charm to Mignonette and it mm -hmm. was, um, you know, I, I'm not sure we go from Mignonette downtown to Mignonette uptown. I'm not sure Mignonette can work anywhere else besides where it's at. Yeah. Uh, so it's so specific to the space. So let's talk about that. You mentioned the uptown location. So I always like hearing about this because working in a standalone restaurant, you want to expand, but it's not always wins. So right. like, give us how that happened. So Mignonette uptown is, or was at, the old gourmet diner just south of Aventura, just north of North Miami and beautiful old diner. One of the original diners that were built in New Jersey and driven down on a trailer. And it was kind of more of on the French side originally. Also a very historical place. Like it used to be on the other side of this game by the train tracks and Sean Connery used to eat there. And the regulars would always tell us all these great stories of the old diner. And we went there trying, not an exact replica of Mignonette, but still making it like a raw bar. We still did our own, very own Mignonette style of service and Mignonette food. Um, and it just, in hindsight, we were probably a little too far north to get our Mignonette crowd and a little too far south to get the Aventura crowd. And we moved into a space that had pre-existing um, most of the guests expected the same thing that used to be there, regardless of whatever went in there. So it, it was a difficult space. I mean, it was, it was a difficult building to manage. Uh, I personally love the food. I put as much as I could possibly put into making that restaurant successful. We also had a hurricane that year. We had no power for two or three weeks, which is not great when you're a seafood restaurant. Cause after day one, 
of no power, you're completely starting over. And, you know, we went through a lot of changes throughout the year and it was, a, it was, um, it's, it's still a moment that I use now to motivate teams or to speak to teams about it pre-shift is that no matter how good you think you have it and no matter how well the restaurant's going, you have to bring it and be your best every single day because one day it could not open anymore and it could close. And, you know, unfortunately we had to make the difficult decision to close the restaurant and it was probably should not have been as much of a surprise as it was. You know, I think a lot of the writing was on the wall for us and everybody did their best to make it work as long as we could. But I still remember that night when Danny let us know that this is what the plan was and going back into the restaurant and just sitting in a booth and crying and apologizing to all the staff and telling them, I'm so sorry this is happening. And, um, you know, you feel personally responsible for letting all these people down that you've asked so much of, you know, it's not easy to work in a restaurant Mm -hmm. and, you know, the bounce back from that is just as important is probably the more important thing that comes, but the lessons you learn in failure are just as important as your successes because you can't, achieve success without having failed, without having worked your way through issues and problems. And I loved that restaurant and I loved working at Mindanette and it was very difficult to say goodbye to all of it. And I took maybe 10 days off, which in hospitality is an eternity uh, to kind of figure out my next move. And because of my exist pre-existing relationships with star restaurants from the W and, um, at the time, my wife was their pastry chef uh, for all of South Florida. Um, you know that I ended up getting an opportunity at Upland as a restaurant manager, and that was a completely different ball game than Mignonette. You know, to be a GM of a sixty well between sixty four and eighty five seats, on, depending on the day of the week at Mignonette, uh, being the GM of a place where you can manage everything from one spot and you're you're in touch with every single thing that happens to going to upland where it's you know 400 seats and you're one of six managers and you're doing again another like 600 700 covers and i felt completely out of my league for the first few months i worked there that you know it was like a minor league player being called up to the major leagues and finally seeing the behind the scenes at star and seeing how it worked and how they train their managers and how high the expectations were. It was intense. And Upland was my favorite dining room in the entire city. It was my favorite restaurant in the city at the time. And I was just so incredibly proud to finally say I worked for Star Restaurants and worked at Upland. Yeah, it, it was a really awesome experience. I got to work with yeah. Emily Aguilar, who was uh, has become one of my biggest mentors since then. And you know, she helped originally with Makoto and with a lot of Star Restaurants in Philadelphia. And, is a real, a, an amazing leader in the industry. A lot of people look up to her. So, you know, Upland brought that opportunity to me, which was amazing. And now it was a, it's a beautiful restaurant at the time. I remember I went during opening. It didn't make it though, which was interesting. Another restaurant group took over the space with a lot of the right. same stuff that was in there called Carbone yeah. and are crushing it now. We'll see how long that lasts. But yeah, you know, you know, for, I, you, know you you had a year there. And then you went back into hotels. I want to kind of skip forward a little bit. What got that going? Was it, I want to get back to a hotel and get out of the, just a standalone restaurant? Well, I've lived in Fort Lauderdale the whole time I've lived and worked in South Florida. And Upland was about 
as far south as you can get without working in the Keys. Yep. And as much as I loved working there, I learned a lot at Upland. It became really difficult to go there for 14 hours a day and drive back at 2 o'clock in the morning on 95, almost to the last exit in Broward County. You know, and as I mentioned, I had two kids. And, you know, at this moment, we were going through a separation at the same time. So it was just a very difficult time. And an opportunity came up at the Dalmar, which is a, uh, a franchised Marriott property, tribute portfolio, and element hotel, downtown Fort Lauderdale with amazing food and beverage concepts. And I felt like I hit the jackpot. It's blocks away from my new apartment, blocks away from where my children were going to school. And I could work in what I felt like were amazing restaurants. I could further my career. You know, my long-term goal had always been to be a director of food and beverage of a hotel. Right. That's what I was going to ask you. So this is a hotel. So to kind of just bring it back real quick, you leave, you've got this awesome job at the Dalmar. It's an opening, right? Yeah. You're opening the place. Yeah. So it's a brand new hotel and you finally become director of food and beverage at a beautiful right. hotel. What does that feel like when you finally get that title? Well, I actually started there as the assistant director. Mm -hmm. And Memphis Garrett was the director and I was able to work my way up to being the director there, but it was, you know, we're creating brands. So in a different than opening the W we had existing brands that were already there for the W that we you know, had to live up to those expectations. And when you're creating new brands, you set the expectations that you have to live up to and you set the expectations you want the rest of the world um, in hospitality's case to see come out of your building. And, I felt like, all right, this is my kind of time to shine. I know I can do this. This is what I've always wanted. And we had great partners there as well. Sparrow, when it opened, had uh, Proprietors, which is the same operating group from Death & Co. in New York City, helping us open the rooftop nightclub, Sparrow. Uh, we did our own restaurant on the ground floor, Terrace Grill, which is kind of in the same vein as like a Hillstone and a beautiful dining room. We had Rose's Coffee Shop another brand we created an amazing coffee shop with pastries all made in house great banquet spaces a beautiful six floor lobby bar that was it's the most beautiful bar i've ever operated one of the most beautiful rooms i've ever walked into and it shared the same floor as the pool which was outside in the sixth floor so everywhere you went the, the building is made for social media i mean it there is even a moe uh, vending machine in the lobby mm -hmm. bar where you could we sell the tokens at the bar and yeah I tried to copy that I saw it because Memphis Garrett <laughs> is one of my fraternity brothers of all things yeah. and he'll be on on the podcast pretty soon uh, but I tried to copy it and I remember they told me the cost of it it was ten thousand dollars to buy the machine I was like what I have to buy it from you I thought you would give yeah. it to me for free so that was pretty awesome you all had that there yeah it's yeah it's a good deal from away yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it that was an amazing property. Uh, it really, really was. And going from assistant director of food and beverage to becoming director of food and beverage towards the end of 2019, you know, here comes 2020. This is going to be the best year of my life. I can't Rough. believe we're everybody's so excited. And then March 15th, I think of 2020, um, I had to furlough 128 of my closest friends and employees and we uh, the next morning i was the roses coffee shop barista and you know credit to the Wurzak family who owns that hot owns the hotel and is the management company there uh they were able to keep a lot of us on and slowly but surely we kind of 
pumped life back into the building. And, you know, we did a change of concept with Sparrow. Went from a strict nightclub to, in two weeks in the middle of June, we turned it into a sushi restaurant. Um, you know, in, a, in June of 2020, when it was difficult to get anything, you know, to buy chopsticks, I was buying chopsticks from restaurants across the street from us because even Cisco didn't have chopsticks at the time, like little things like that. It went from being a, you know, what started as this beautiful new hotel creating its own identity with the power of Marriott behind it. In 2020, it turned right back into like an independent mom and pop. We're doing this for each other. You know, Joe LaFleur was our general manager at the time. And he had all the managers. We all had our own public area shift where we were sweeping and mopping the public areas. We were all stripping hotel rooms, anything we could do to keep it going. You know, there were days in April that year where the only people staying in the hotel were Delta Airlines pilots and they were flying only to park planes elsewhere. And it was dire. It was it was really dire and scary. And I know everybody's gone through the pandemic in a different way and the industry really struggled. And I'm, I was so incredibly proud to be the director of food and beverage, this property. And 95 days after we closed everything, we reopened Sparrow as the sushi club or a sushi night lounge. And it was busy right out of the gate. And you could tell all of Fort Lauderdale, everybody was like ready for something to happen. And I stayed with the Dalmar and kept working until eventually we brought back almost every single employee that we furloughed. That's awesome. And it was, uh, that was more of an accomplishment to me than, you know, we were awarded best new restaurant in Broward, little things like that, that we never were striving for. You know, we got little, you know, awards here and there and, but bringing the staff back and getting them to come back to work and see that we were there keeping everything together so they could come back. That was, it's probably one of the best accomplishments of my entire career is to just have that feeling to see them come back. When the new, you call them and say, hey, this is open. Are you interested in coming back? And they're crying because they're so happy to get the opportunity. That's one of the best feelings in my entire career. And I really owe uh, Jake Werzak and Eric Davies and Howard Werzak and Kristen Werzak and Joe LaFleur and, you know, all my team that were there, Chef Michael Marchand, uh, we went through a lot to keep that place kind of upright. And it was uh, it was amazing. I told myself I would only leave if an opportunity came that I could never say no to. And that kind of leads me to where we're at now. The owners of Mandolin, Ahmed and Anastasia, had reached out to me to assist opening, as their pre-opening GM, the Drexel, which was their – the founders of Mandolin partners with the former GM of Mandolin and her husband, uh, Tamara is her name. And the chef is Nano Crespo to open the Drexel, a new property on Espanola way in Drexel Avenue. It's within the Esme hotel. And it's like their first real shot at doing something different than Mandolin that they were putting everything they had behind. And they wanted me to be the GM and knowing what Mandolin is and how Mandolin has grown kind of naturally. It was an opportunity that I absolutely cannot say no to. It was a small restaurant, 80 seats. They had a clear plan for how things were going to move forward. And, you know, then I'm back in independent restaurants again. And yeah, that's a big decision. How, how did that go down in your mind, right? Because you're direct food and beverage at the Dalmar. You go through this battle during COVID, which I know anyone that's been through it 
including myself, you spent, you form a special bond with those people that you went through it yeah. with. Yeah. And then you get a call from one of the top restaurateurs in the country to do something with what, what had they, how'd you make that decision? So it, it was, it was tough because of the, purely because of the emotional bond I had with the team at the Dalmar and the owners at Dalmar put a lot of faith in me and they trusted me to run their business. But in, in the end, I've always wanted to have my own restaurant. So I, when I have made decisions, it's because I'm trying to further either my education or my personal growth to a point where I can one day have my own restaurant. And now, as opposed to when I took the Minionette job, I was had not even turned 30 yet, or I was turning 30. Now I'm getting ready to turn, I turned 38 in September. You learn a lot in especially the last two years, it's been like the last two years, it felt like a decade of learning. And I felt like it put me in a position where I could potentially one day have my own restaurant or at least learn from somebody or the best, one of the best to ever do it on how I should go about it. And getting to open the Drexel with that team was, it, it was amazing. You know, just like any opening, there's a lot of delays and a lot of things that can be incredibly disheartening, but because of Mandolin being around and Mr. Mandolin, there were, I was helping at Mandolin for a few weeks at a time, working at Mr. Mandolin, which is at the Vagabond Hotel, uh, through the summer and helping them put things in place. We opened a cafe at the Vagabond. So the, this pre-opening was different than any other pre-opening I've done before. We were choosing all the CGS. It wasn't a Marriott guide. This is what you have to serve on. It, we got to really define the entire brand. And I got to be involved in some of that process for Drexel. I got to create the entire cocktail menu, work with Ahmed on the wine list and hire all the employees. And it was trying to not use hyperbole. It was the best opening um, I've ever been a part of. We were such a great team. Everybody there, it's still a great team there. If you haven't been, I can't recommend it enough. It's my favorite restaurant in all of South Beach. And the, the team was so committed. And I spent a lot of time at pre-shift talking about how much it means to me and how much it needs to mean to everybody, all the small things. And that entire team bought into every single thing I said. And for the first time, I was like this, I feel like we cracked the code. Like, I feel like we figured it out. And I remember our first guest, or right around our first guest, the first night of service, they sat on table 201. There was two people visiting from New York City. And, you know, I, they kind of looked a little, just, it looked like they weren't really enjoying everything. So I walked over to the table, I introduced myself, and I said, you know, how is everything? Are you enjoying your experience? And, you know, they were almost crying. They were like, for the first time in two years, I feel like I'm having dinner in the city. And being compared to a restaurant in New York City might be the biggest compliment you can ever get for an independent restaurant in Miami. Um, and it, I just felt like we, we nailed it. You know, this was great. 10 days into service, Ahmet comes to me and says, I want you to be the GM at Mandolin. And I had no idea what to do or, or think. I was like, we just opened this beautiful, perfect little restaurant and now 10 days into it, I'm, you want, you want me to leave? Have I done something wrong? And it was confusing. I didn't, I thought this was, this was the plan. We're doing this. And, you know, it was uh, an opportunity was there to go to Mandolin, which as you've mentioned is one of the most beautiful, romantic, intimate, busiest restaurants in the entire world. 
And to be the leader of a team like this and in a space like Mandolin is just, it's an opportunity that only two, two other people in the entire world have ever had that opportunity. So to even be considered was a real honor. And it's three and a half months into it and it's over delivered. It's been uh, an incredible learning experience. It's been so far the highlight of my career being just being part of this team, let alone being the leader of the team and to see what the brand has coming moving forward. And, you know, it's, it's an incredibly exciting time to be part of this. And it's funny, you know, and I want to brag for you a little bit, cause I don't see you as the person to brag for yourself, but you know, for, for listeners and you haven't been there, Mandolin is now like the hot, hardest restaurant to get into in the city. You have billionaires, actors, locals, anyone, everyone's trying to get into where Matt is working. And, you know, I've been there and it's a, a great spot, but what do you think it is that draws people to that restaurant? Why does everybody want to go there? Well, it's hard to say. It's here, working here, we just call it Mandolin Magic. There's just something here that, you know, it's mostly outdoors in a city where it rains almost every day for at least five minutes. And people love sitting outside. They love being out there when it rains. There's no music at Mandolin. You only hear hospitality sounds, just glasses clinking and silverware. And it's just an incredibly natural experience that you walk through our beautiful blue gate and you are not in Miami anymore. It really takes you away to another place. And it, it really is amazing. Uh, I, it's, you know, the team is completely bought into everything that happens here. It's, you know, we have people that have worked here for the entire 12 years that Mandolin's been open. And we have people that have worked here for 12 days and you can't tell them apart. It's something happens when you work here. You're just kind of transformed into, you know, part of the restaurant. And it's, uh, it's just very difficult to explain. I mean, you can come here during the day and it's beautiful. You're outside, there's birds everywhere. The orchids are blooming. The trees are beautiful. It, but when you come here at night for dinner, and it's just oil lanterns on the tables and it's incredibly intimate. It's a large restaurant. It's about 200 seats, but every single table you're at, you feel like you're the only table in the restaurant. And it, it's just once it's just one of a kind experience. It's I don't know how else to explain it. It's just a very natural experience. It's incredibly, even I romanticize the restaurant a lot. I do this a lot at the tables, but it, it it's just incredibly special. It's very hard to explain. Um, the pictures look beautiful, but it's even, once you step inside, it's just a real, it's, it's a game changer. It's the most beautiful restaurant in Miami. And you say you've been there now almost four months and are yeah. you in the learning stage or are you making an imprint of any of your like style in there? So a little bit of both. There's a lot to learn at mm -hmm. Mandolin. There's a lot, uh, you know, we're open for 11 hours a day, nonstop. We have, uh, you know, we start with about eight servers in the morning at 1030, setting up the entire restaurant. There's a shift change at 345, which is like a real changing of the guard, checks opening and closing and multiple people moving in and out at the same time. And we're still serving the whole time. We don't stop. So that's different than anything I've ever been part of before. So managing that process and finding ways to, you know, tweak or improve, there's not a whole lot to improve, but, you know, I, I think that's also kind of the challenge for me is to find how can we as a team move Mandolin up the next level and how can we keep pushing? Uh, there's definitely some things mostly because of my diverse background between rooms and consulting. And I have a, a, what I feel like is a really great financial understanding of 
like the behind the scenes. And that's a part of the restaurant that most of the managers here have not really been exposed to. So just sharing that information with them, like what the decision you just made, what does that really mean for us? And what are all the possible outcomes? And I, I feel like I'm starting to make an impact. I definitely, the staff is reacting to me. I mean, it's, I get here usually at 10 o'clock in the morning. I leave between nine and 10 at night. And I walk into the restaurant clapping as loud as I can. So the whole restaurant knows I'm here. It's time to wake up. It's pre-shift. Let's get ready. And it's, it's an incredibly happy place. I think Mandolin has definitely had more of an impact on me than I have on Mandolin so far, but I'm looking forward to see the benefits. I think that's a, a great way to say it. So Matt, you've been, you come from a 6,000 person town, in Indiana. You've been, to Hawaii, you've come down to Florida. Now you're running the most popular restaurant, arguably in the country. If you could go back to Matt starting out in that pizza shop and you could give advice to that person, if they were starting in hospitality today, what advice would you give young Matt? Well, hands down, you have to love every single step of the process. And it's not just about selling the good bottle of wine. It's about making sure your entire section is the best looking section. You have to love all the minutia that goes into hospitality. It's really a sum of a lot of small parts and take pride in your work and be confident and just give your best. If you love your team and you work with your team as hard as possible and they see you working with them, you'll go, they'll carry you forever. And just remember you're in it with a bunch of other people. And it's one big team to make it happen. You can't do it all on your own. Matt, I think that's a great place to end our conversation today. If somebody wants to connect with you, how can they find you? Is there somewhere online or anywhere that somebody can connect with you if they want to chat with you? Yeah, there's a couple ways. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I think that's how we got connected. Mm -hmm. I'm also on Instagram. My Instagram handle is Jimmy underscore Dinko, um, which is a really silly nickname from college, but uh, I'm most likely the only Dinkle on Instagram. So you could probably just look my name on Instagram. You'll find me. And then my email address is matt.dinkle at mandolinmiami.com. And I would love nothing more to speak to anybody who's heard this or wants to ask more questions. And uh, It's been a real pleasure to kind of talk for just over an hour. I don't yeah, it goes by quick. Yeah, I don't get to sit down for this often, for this much very often. So it was a real pleasure to get to do yeah, this. Yeah, Matt, I appreciate you taking the time and, and talking about your journey. I got to come see you soon under one of those oil lamps at your restaurant and and uh, have a drink with you. But I appreciate yes, you taking please. the time, man. I really do. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm glad we were able to make this happen. This podcast is brought to you by Biscayne Coffee. Biscayne Coffee was founded with a giving spirit and a big idea to enjoy delicious coffee roasted in Miami while helping save Biscayne Bay and the animals that live there. As a former food and beverage director, I can assure you these are some of the best quality beans on the planet. 10% of every coffee sold is donated to nonprofits to help preserve Biscayne Bay for all to enjoy. Visit BiscayneCoffee.com today and use promo code MENTOR at checkout to save 10% on your first order. Drink good coffee and create a good outcome.
This podcast is a Hospitality.fm production.